yeah, I really messed this one up. Um, 2023 Life in Red podcast. Uh, I recorded this conversation back in August. And for the life of me, I, I can't tell you why. But I I just couldn't mentally get over this hump of doing more podcasts. And to my guest, I apologize. And to you, I apologize. But 2022, as a year and a whole, if you follow me on social media, you'll know that I posted about it several times. But it has been an incredibly challenging and difficult year, especially in terms of my own mental health. And so one of the things I did to sort of lessen the load is I let the podcast slip for the most part. At one point I was doing one a week. I think last year we did five episodes, six episodes. And uh, that's, that's really unfortunate and uh, not, not happy about it, but really going to try, like I've said many times already to do more episodes this year and get back into it because like let's be honest it it has been one of the most beneficial beneficial things having these amazing conversations with people and learning and hearing amazing pers- per perspectives so while this episode was recorded in august uh probably should have went out at that time um As I recorded it, kids were just going right back to school. And so that's what we were talking about. But kids are going back to school uh, now in the winter. And uh, some of the things still uh, apply. But the uh, the large part of this conversation really does apply. Because we talk about kids' mental health and and therapy. And some of the changes we saw over the pandemic. And diagnoses and challenges that our healthcare and our mental health workers have have faced when it comes to kids. We know it's been an incredibly difficult time with the pandemic and lockdowns. And I think for a lot of kids who are growing up on social media, it is, uh, it's a completely different time than even me who grew up 15 years ago at the start of social media are experiencing. And so professionals are really finding new challenges and and new things that they should be concerned about with kids. And so we, we talk about all of that and it was such a, an amazing conversation. And my guest was so intelligent and knowledgeable and I'm, I'm excited to get this back out there. Excited to get into more episodes, uh, episode 136, I believe it is now. So please give it up for my guest, Michaela D Stefano. Take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I almost just said it wrong, Michaela. How are you? <laughs> we just talked about this before I turned on the microphone. All good. Hello. How I'm are you? Well. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Fun fact for those listening, um, my first in-person mental health talk um, in like two, two and a half years, like since the pandemic started, uh, that's where we met. So uh, shout out to uh, the Canadian uh, Mental Health Association of uh, what was South 
Glengarry was like Champlain, Champlain East. Yeah. So shout out to them for the connection and the wonderful event and uh, that golf tournament we were at, like a tremendous community event, raising tons of money over the years. Yeah. Yeah, it was my first time going, oh. actually. Yeah, yeah. So my mom is uh, is a social worker and a director at Canadian Mental Health. Um, so yeah, so I was there kind of supporting them and then got to meet you. Through there. Yeah. Um, so you yourself also involved in the mental health community in a capacity. Uh, you're getting your PhD in child psychology, which mm-hmm. I think is... Um, one tremendous uh we know how much um i think that field like is is important when we're we're dealing with kids and adolescents growing up and and dealing with sort of whether it's mental illness or trauma or other things you know the work you do is critically important what what made you want to be a child psychologist and i know that's probably a very long story maybe it's a short story but um what made you want to take on this uh this role and responsibility? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. It might be a bit of a long-winded answer, I think. Um, so as I mentioned, my mom is a social worker. So she worked in the mental health field for a long time, worked frontline, working with families and domestic violence specifically. Um, and I've always, always been interested in working with mental health Um, as a therapist and kind of was more interested in psychology specifically in terms of as psychologists, you know, and again, I'm not a psychologist yet. Um, That's what I'm training to be, but we can conduct assessments, um, provide diagnoses that can like better inform treatment. Um, And I was really interested in that whole kind of process as a whole. Now, I didn't always want to be a child psychologist specifically. Um, So even in my undergrad, um, so I did my undergrad at the University of Ottawa, and now I'm doing my PhD at the University of Ottawa as well. Um, I always want to be a forensic psychologist, which is a little bit uh, apart from child psychology. We did an episode with a forensic psychologist. Yeah. Very cool. Very interested in the field. Um, So, you know, and I've always been into kind of true crime and all that stuff, but really interested in like the psychology of what makes a person commit these actions. Somehow though, in all of my, um, you know, summer jobs and volunteering positions, I was always kind of um, ended up in positions where I worked with children. So I worked in summer camps and I worked um, with the autism program at CHEO and always kind of ended up working with kids. Um, And then I took a class in undergrad, which was child psychology, um, and I had an amazing professor, his name is Dr. Jean-François Bureau um, at the University of Ottawa, Um, still do a lot of work with him, Um, and just the way that he spoke about attachment theory in specific and the relation between parents um, and children and the impact that these different relationships can have on children's development that really just sparked an interest in me and had me kind of looking back at all of my previous experiences working with um, children where I was like oh my gosh you know there is there are so many things that um, can contribute to child mental health including you know this 
family dynamic. And so that kind of sparked the interest and made me want to go more into that kind of family therapy type thing. So that's what made, like contributed to the switch. Um, and so I guess, yeah, that's sort of how I ended up there, sort of volunteering for Dr. Bureau specifically, um, and then ended up in another lab in grad school um, with Dr. Erin Maloney. Um, so she does a lot of research on math anxiety. Mm. I don't know if I should go into that specifically. Maybe I'll take a pause and see if you have any questions for me. Yeah, um, well, we've definitely sure. sort of talked in a, a few different episodes with people who are, you know, getting their PhD and and um, psychology and and sort of the neurosciences and talking mm -hmm. about things like, you know, how gut bacteria and your microbiome plays into mm -hmm. it, how trauma plays into it, but. I'm curious about that that attachment and sort of how that sparked your interest. And mm. I guess it comes into a question of like nature and nurture. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. like how, you know, again, probably another really big, profound question, but sort of when you're learning about this stuff and you're getting interested in, you know, how much has to do with sort of like our genetics versus how much families and parenting styles like how much does that contribute to I guess how we become as adults and like issues around along the along the way and down the road yeah yeah I mean first of all that is a big question yeah <laughs> I think we still don't have that clear answer right is it nature or nature or, or yeah nature or nurture right now we're kind of like you know it's it's both from what we can tell, we're all born with a certain temperament, certain personality traits that are there at the base. They are part of our genetics. Um, and that as a result will influence how our environments so or families interact with us um, and how we interact with our families. So there's that part. Um, so I think like at the base, there are things that we are born with that really contribute to our developmental trajectory. Um, however, how parents, and not, I, I say parents, you know, it can be caregivers because not all um, children necessarily have parents. They have caregivers. And it can also be, um, you know, other important members or authority figures in um, their environment. So teachers, for example, coaches, these are all people in a child's environment that have a huge impact. Um, and the way that they nurture children and respond to a kid's temperament can either heighten some difficulties or can kind of appease them and help them develop in kind of a different way. So just because, you know, um, your born with, um, whether it be a neurodevelopmental disorder like ADHD or, um, or maybe, um, I don't like oppositional defiance disorder. I'm not a huge fan of that title because I think that other things can contribute to, to kind of those behaviors. But if you're born with kind of a more, I guess, um, aggressive temperament and heightened emotions, if you have a parent who 
is also dysregulated, not very validating of your emotions, is not tending to your emotional needs, then chances are those behaviors are just going to increase more and more. Whereas if you have a parent who can be, or caregiver or coach, who can be more attuned to a child's needs and recognize, you know, you're feeling really frustrated right now. And I would be frustrated too if whatever the situation, if my sibling like took my toy or if um, a teacher gave me a bad grade or whatever it may be, you know, I get that you're frustrated right now and you're allowed to feel that emotion. Just naming that and accepting that all emotions are valid can be a huge weight lifted off of a child's shoulders when they don't understand themselves what's going on in their internal world, right? So when you're a kid, you're so dependent on the adults around you to help you navigate that world. So if you don't have that, that's when you go on to develop some of those alternative, I guess, coping strategies because your emotional needs were never really met Mm. at the base. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we're going to go back in a little bit to that oppositional defiance order, but what I'm curious about, and this is something I've been thinking about, um, a little more recently when, you know, learning more about mental health and trauma and sort of the relationship between your childhood and and how you, you know, are as an adult. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that got me thinking is, you know, the sort of like the classic traditional trope of, you know, I'm a parent, I know it's best for my kids. Um, I'm not going to get you into the, the, the tiptoeing, uh, area of critiquing people's parenting, Yes, but no. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's and I'm little... not in the business of doing yeah. that either by the way, working oh, with families. What I'm yeah. curious, is there known scientific differences? Um, because you hear a lot of sort of, I don't know if they're theories as much as just stereotypes or myths, but a difference between like whether it's an absence or neglect or, you know, an unhealthy relationship with mothers uh, or fathers. Um, So we're going to just say in heteronormative relationships for now, but is there a difference? Like if the way that you might respond to maybe missing the like a a father in your Mm -hmm. life, father figure or mother, like would those absences develop differently depending on what they are? Is it more like a general you're missing a parent and that sort of, uh, development is just more of a general sense. Right. Okay. I get where, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I'll just add a caveat to say, I'm not super up to date with that research. However, there is research on this. Um, so if what you're asking, if we go back, so there's kind of the one question where is it, you know, is it more important if you get that from mom or from dad? Is that kind of one question? Yeah. Is there a difference that like, so the things that get me thinking about it, and it goes back to the conversation I just had on my last podcast mm-hmm. is you, when, um, as an example, a woman will go into sex work or something and the immediate thought for people would be like, oh, daddy issues, Right. And like the neglect right. of like a father figure somehow leads to this objectification of your body versus if you have mommy issue, right? Like that's just a very general internet right. sense. But as your development, is there a difference between, you know, being raised by a single father and missing your or single mother, missing your dad, single father, mm-hmm. missing your mom as you develop? Like, 
does that change how you develop or is it more of like a general you're just missing a parent and like or or that a person in your life and you're going to kind of develop doesn't really matter yeah, I would tend to say that it's more, um, and it's not even the like you're missing the one parent, it's more like the in the caregiving system, whoever your caregiver is, whether that be one parent or two parents, you know, a mom, a dad, two moms, two dads, how is that caregiving system responding to your needs, right? So maybe, you know, if you think of, if you're using that example of, you know, sex workers, and then you're thinking, oh, it's because they had daddy issues, and they were missing a dad growing up. Okay, but what are some of the other factors that might have led this person to seek out? And I mean, it could have also been completely their choice, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but just thinking if there are some other issues, you know, um, what are some of the other factors that might have contributed to this person ending up in, in the position that they're in? Maybe part of it is that their father wasn't present, but is there maybe an abandonment issue there that wasn't completely addressed by the other caregiver, right? So you would assume that there were maybe some other issues at play within the relationship, maybe the parent that was present was also a little bit neglectful in a way. And I'm just making assumptions, yeah. right? This is one way in this, in which this could pan out. Um, but just what I would say from the knowledge that I have is that it's not so straightforward you know that this person must be in this situation because they have daddy issues because their dad left their family okay but they're probably maybe they're living below the poverty line maybe they're really marginalized too and now i'm going beyond attachment as well there's so many other factors at play um the other thing that i want to say is now i'm not super familiar with this research but i know it exists um, I know some of the common myths, especially in attachment research, is that attachment only really matters with mothers, right? Mm -hmm. Like mothers are the primary caregivers and dads are kind of just there to be fun and play and they're like the breadwinners of the family or whatever that may be. There's a lot more research coming out. And when I mentioned Dr. Jean-François Bureau, he does a lot of research on fatherhood um, and attachment to fathers and how that is equally important. Um, and it's not just mother-child attachment that takes precedence. Um, now, again, I can't really speak much to that research mm -hmm. because I'm not really involved. Um, but just if if some of your listeners are interested in some of that, that's something they can go and, and look into for sure. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things everyone is is concerned about right now is, um, you know, as we speak, we're we're sort of I mean, we're in the pandemic, but a lot of people think like it's pretty much done, and for the most part. Uh, you know, next week or even right now, most kids are going back to school uh -huh. for the first time with the anticipation that they will continue going to school unmasked. For the most part, most public health um, guidelines are for the most part sort of loosening up even around school and the return to school. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time in two and a half years, two years, a lot of these kids are going to be going back to some sort of, at least for now, a routine schedule. Mm -hmm. 
what most people are concerned about is the effects of the last two years, uh, how that's had on kids and their development and their social skills and all these different things. And I know from anecdotal experience from people I've been talking to and in, in different situations, uh, you know, emergency rooms are, are really seeing a lot more kids like rise in like kids coming from mental health help or, you know, in severe crisis, um, I know lots of people are having kids struggling. So in your field with your colleagues and the things you've seen and the things, you know, your field is talking about, you know, what are we seeing right now with children and, and sort of the effects of the last couple of years? Yeah. Um, another big question. <laughs> so we're here for the, those yes, big profound big, ones. Yes. Before there was even a pandemic, there was already a youth mental health crisis on the rise, right? So what we saw then with the onset of COVID-19 is that there was like, it kind of exacerbated the whole crisis. And now you're seeing, if I can just speak, yeah. So one, you're talking about emergency rooms, right? Mm -hmm. So many visits to emerge um, in reason of, you know, mental health difficulties, and when you're looking at wait lists all over in the community, the wait lists are so long or they're even closed. So you can't even get your name on a wait list to be seen because these practices are having such a hard time just keeping up, right? There's so, so, so much demand. Um, and then you think of more, and that's in terms of kind of private practice, that's what I'm thinking of right now. But then you think of more community resources mm. and that's just like, forget about it. You won't be seen for two, three years, right? Um, and by two, three years, I mean, that's just way, mm -hmm. way too long to wait to be seen. Um, so there's that part in terms of the crisis and you talked about social skills um, and how it'll um, influence them socially. And that's something that I'm starting to see, actually. Mm. Um, even if we talk about social anxiety, for example, social anxiety is usually something that psychologists will see onset. I mean, it can be diagnosed at any age, um, but the onset is typically around, you know, the teen years. Now what we're starting to see is that these traits are coming up much, much earlier on in childhood, like a five-year-old with social anxiety, you know? Um, and that's because for some of their prime years, right? If you think like a five-year-old, the pandemic hit when they were maybe two and a half, three years old. So they had that two-year gap, a really important period of time developmentally where they developed that social awareness, right? And that um, uh, so theory of mind, I'm not sure if you've ever mm -hmm. heard of that concept. So theory of mind is kind of that, um, I'll just give a brief description, mm -hmm. but it's that ability to, to kind of anticipate or know kind of what you are thinking, right? So I was actually using theory of mind right now in um, kind of anticipating that you probably don't know what theory of mind is, right? Because, you know, you're not trained in psychology necessarily and da da da. Um, so kids in that developmental stage, like three, four, five, they start to begin to develop 
this ability to think like this person might be thinking this, this person might be judging me for doing this. Right. So that's where social anxiety comes in. Mm. And they haven't gotten the practice to go out and interact with other kids and with other people. So now we're kind of throwing them into the world and they haven't had those interactions like kids normally would. And so they're developing a lot more, um, like they're, they're becoming a lot more self-conscious and just not wanting to go into those situations. So that's something that we're starting to see a lot more and that parents are really, really concerned about. Um, and it's, it's really sad to see. I mean, it doesn't mean that there's no treatment for it and that it can't be helped but because it's impacting people on such a large scale it's hard to provide everyone with the resources they need yeah yeah that's I mean that's one of the biggest reasons why I advocate and you know speaking and stuff can only go so far because you're telling kids you know if you need help ask and then everyone's asking and there's nothing yeah and that's hard ask or they won't know right that's where a lot of people end up in emerge too it's like i don't know where else to go or when we tell them where to go people are like sorry wait lists are closed or try this place and they try this other place and that place is closed too and then they just give up you've got kids who are already having this sense of hopelessness you know if they're dealing with depression whatever that may be that just increases that sense of hopelessness right they're telling me to reach out for help but nobody actually wants to help yeah yeah and then it just i know it's just this vicious cycle and i know just tons of kids going to emerge and being put on like seroquel or something or an antidepressant at like 12 and it's like a you know, band-aid sword. yeah and I, I i understand those doctors are just like you know this might help until this but like yeah. i just it, it bugs me and I, this could be a whole separate conversation that like the government like well here's a phone number like yo like <laughs> oh exactly and then even when covid started i think and i can speak to like ontario specifically you know, there were all these things put in place because so OHIP doesn't cover mental health yeah. services, right? So it covers physicians, you know, medical services, but not psychologists or other mental health professionals. And so when COVID first hit, the government did recognize that, you know, more support was needed for mental health. Um, sorry, I should not the, the government did not recognize that. The, <laughs> Mental health professionals recognize that and we're coming together and offering free services, right? But there's only so much they could do. So they could offer, you know, maybe up to six free sessions um, to people. But the research shows that it's not up until 15 or 20 sessions that you start to really recover from whatever it is you might be living through. So even then, it's just all of these temporary mm-hmm. band-aid solutions that are not really having an impact long-term. Mm-hmm. And if I can add, I think I might have mentioned this to you when we met. Um, so back on this um, note on the government. So mental health professionals were once upon a time, I don't remember how long ago, Um asked and then consulted to see, you know, should mental health care be included under OHIP? And 
ultimately, and I'm saying this is not all mental health professionals that decided this, but collectively they decided that no, they didn't want to be covered under OHIP for two reasons. One, because it would give too much control to the government in terms of what types of services they could provide. Mm. And two, because they wouldn't be making as much money covered under OHIP than if they were going the private route. And I don't know how you feel hearing that, but that doesn't sit super well with me. Like I still have kind of shivers yeah. when I or when I when I mention it, right? When I first when somebody first told me that and I was kind of digging into it, I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? You'd still be making enough money to live, you know? Like how much money do you need? Yeah. Um, I yeah. it it's a hard one to hear. And I think it always I have a an an, an old friend and who's a lot older than I am. Um but uh his wife is a child psychologist and you know you you do hard work and you as a site like you know do hard work you pay a lot of money for that education um you know it's heavy it weighs on you so i believe that yes you deserve to be um compensated much better than you know the average i think you should be paid well but to hear like i don't know what the level would have been under ohip like if you you know what like if you're making 100 but now you can make 200 or you know yeah. it's hard to make a complete judgment but to yeah, hear that when you know you know so many people are, are in need but like you know then we could run into the program like the problem that we have now where we still don't have enough That's still don't have other, enough that right? was like, the other problem yeah so yeah you make it free we right? still don't have people to help so you yeah. everyone would be on wait list so yeah. like that is not yeah. a great i mean it's a solution and can alleviate especially for those who are in very like who are in, you know, lower income or, um, you know, racialized backgrounds, like those people who really could use the help is is a great thing. But for like everything, you know, it could it could potentially make it even worse. Exactly, and that was the next thing I was gonna say. Right, is we have these questions around accessibility of services in terms of you know, um, the people who are people who can't be seen in more kind of community settings or hospital settings um, either don't receive services or they can go the private route if they can afford it. And that was something that hit me whenever I heard you speak was you mentioned something like, you know, one of the things that people can do to take care of their mental health is go to therapy if you can afford it. And that just like stuck with me because, you know, that's one of the things that I tell myself all the time. It's just not fair, right? That not mm -hmm. everybody have access to mental health services. And like you said, already we're struggling to provide services to everyone who needs it. So I don't know that necessarily making it more accessible right now. I think we still should make mm -hmm. it more accessible um, in the sense that I don't think um it should come out of, you know, the client's pockets to pay for services. And it doesn't solve the problem that there's just not enough mental health professionals right now who can address all of the needs of our society. Um, and I don't have an answer on how to rectify that. I think right? if we did, we'd be fixing it, you know, it's, yeah. 
I mean, really, it's incentivizing people to get into the profession, whether it's sort of like what we are with nurses and teachers, like we pay for their school. Um, You know, we just make it so much. It's tricky because you can't make it too easy because like not everybody could do it. Quality Yeah, like this is a really important job. But like just breaking down the barriers, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people who would love to do it and they just can't afford the schooling. And I think that like, that's one answer, but I mean, I'd be, you know, in a higher position if I could figure it all out. Yeah, I know. And there are things that I start to think about too. I'm like, Oh, what about if we offered more groups? Right. So instead of, so Mm -hmm. then you just target a whole lot of people at once and being a part of a group as opposed to just individual therapy can provide a lot of benefits as well. You feel kind of this sense of community mm-hmm. and belonging with others around you who are going through the same things as you are. You realize you're not alone. Um, and then it's easier also, you know, if a psychologist or um, a psychotherapist is offering this mm-hmm. um, and decides to offer it pro bono, right? So you can offer it pro bono to multiple people at once, rather than several individual mm-hmm. pro bono cases. So you're not losing that much of your own livelihood. Um, so that could be one way. And then I know another thing that you had mentioned at one point was social media as well, like yep. raising awareness through social media, which I think have has the its advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm as well yeah right there's um it's sort of like uh in a way it becomes that group um therapy that you said like it's not facilitated by a professional but at least you have people online who sort of like at least empathize and get it and it becomes that sort of like pure mentorship pure guided support which is lovely right i've made tons of friends from around the world because of this so there's absolutely you know, I, I love that solution, but you're right. Like social media isn't exactly like a safe place and yeah. opening yourself up online, um, you know, can lead to um, you know, bad outcomes, especially for, uh, again, uh, black folks, indigenous folks, women, uh, LGBTQ uh, people. Like, you know, it's one thing for me as a straight white man to do it, but like it also for all those folks opens up a whole can of worms that can, you know, jeopardize your safety. And so you got to think about that as well. So again, not a great solution, but something that can help in the right setting. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. It's so it's so tough, right? And I know I really need to get on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok yet. And working with kids and teens, I always yeah. ask myself, I'm not on it yet. <laughs> you know, it's a weird I'll place. I've heard <laughs> a great place, but it can yeah. get weird and yeah, bad really kind of fast. reluctant of getting on it. And I feel like it would be professionally a wise decision to be informed and know what my clients are talking about. But I know that on TikTok, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because again, I don't, I'm not on it. Um, but there will be, there's kind of this rise in, um, people kind of sharing their own experiences with different diagnoses, diagnoses they've received. So like ADHD, uh, autism, mm-hmm. um, I've heard like, um, borderline personality yeah. disorder, BPD, well. yeah. yeah. So they'll start kind of, um, sharing that. And then it's kind of like 
you know how we tell people don't start, you know, Googling your symptoms mm-hmm. because it'll just confirm that you you have like a brain tumor or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's sort of the same thing that's happening here where it sounds a lot like, you know, what the individual or the teen is experiencing, but it's not being shared. You know, it's an anecdotal kind of story. It's not being shared by a professional um, and a lot of misconceptions can be formed and it's possible that, you know, if let's say I was a teen and I see this and some someone starts talking about, you know, um, uh, their symptoms of depression and, and how they're having such a hard time concentrating, they're tired all the time, all of these different things. And then you're just, I'm just convinced that, oh my gosh, maybe I'm depressed too. And mm-hmm. that can be so great because it can be so validating and just see that other people go through this and there's things to do. But we also know that thyroid issues can contribute to, you know, extreme fatigue and lack of concentration and all these things. So you're potentially missing out on something else because you've just kind of confirmed and zoned in on some of these things. So it can be potentially dangerous at the same time. Right. And I'm not saying that people should stop doing that because, like I said, there's a lot of benefits to it, too. I just think that it's hard with kids and teens. Um because they don't quite know yet how to pick out that information um, and and take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Right? The, They're really important conversations as well. It's something I've talked about and thought about a lot too, the self-diagnosis mm-hmm. on social media, especially TikTok. Mm-hmm. And you see it commonly with things like autism, uh, yeah. ADHD for yeah. sure. Like there's yeah. a lot of people and um ocd those are three common ones i see a lot and i'm just gonna i'm gonna set aside the the discourse and the dialogue around it that you would typically see in the comment section or people resharing videos because that in and of itself can be incredibly confusing and toxic because there's people calling each other out and saying it's not real or it's this or it's that setting all that aside which is dangerous enough you know you're right. These these people, and I've even thought about it too. Like watching people talk about HD, I'm like, God, do I have ADHD? Like, what? Sounds a lot like me in ways. But um, I think in the 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 search of what we all do, and especially young people on on social media, that you're trying to find your 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 lane, your identity, your avenue, trying to discover who you are. And when you see this thing, you're like, Oh, that sounds like me. And then you sort of like develop this personality around it you also see it with chronic um like chronic pain like you're chronically pain and then therefore disabled and again not to discredit any of these people because i know there is mistrust with the medical community again especially with women and you know black people indigenous like people of color that doctors aren't always the greatest at listening to their symptoms and pain and all that stuff so not to discredit it but you're right that it can be potentially dangerous to be self-diagnosing off of a creator or this this trend on tiktok um which i don't know it can lead you down these these different paths that might not be particularly good for you physically or mentally well exactly yeah and you talk about you mentioned chronic pain so my husband's a physiotherapist so this is something we talk about a lot like kind of the intersection between you know like 
physical pain and mental illness mm-hmm. as well. And things that you end up seeing with um, chronic pain and, you know, depression or anxiety, especially if you're not followed by a professional, is that you end up kind of building your whole identity around that. And then you end up losing yourself within that and creating kind of this, again, I'm going to come back to this sense of, of hope. So yes, it can be validating for them to be like, okay, there, there might be something going on that explains why I'm feeling this way. And also they might just create their whole kind of personality and world around that and forgetting that there are all these other parts to them that contribute to them as a whole person as well. And I don't want to use the word, I'm not even going to use that word. (laughs) We're going to backtrack. But um, yeah, no, I just think it can be unfortunate sometimes um, because they can kind of develop this idea that there's nothing, they're just like this and there's not necessarily anything that can help. And that's something that you see a lot with chronic pain and, yeah. and depression too. And some not always with anxiety, but I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Yeah. I put a lot of work in over the years to not, not be defined by my mental illness, yeah. especially like because I speak about it publicly and that I, I do all these things. Like I, but I, I don't want to just be known as Ryan, the depressed, anxious guy, right? Like I, I'm like, there's a- other aspects to me that I think are important. And uh, it, it's taken a lot to try to work against my mindset because especially because that advocacy is so validating and, you know, encouraging and, you know, I get a lot of praise for it and I, I, it, it's very gratifying, but like, you know, if, I don't want to limit myself on saying I can never get fully better or healed or all those yeah, things either. Yeah. And so it's like a, it's a tricky little mind game you work yeah. on through therapy yeah. to not do it. Yeah. Um, I did want to touch on because it, it sort of relates to this conversation about social media, but you mentioned there was even before COVID a rising sort of, um, you know, mental health mm-hmm. crisis within child, like kids and teens. What, what do you think we're seeing sort of contributes to that because I'm I know for a fact mm-hmm. social media yeah. does contribute to it yeah. in ways. Um talk about Instagram and and you know the the rise in you know body like eating disorders and everything because of the body dysmorphia and stuff that w- yeah. the women young girls are experiencing with things like Instagram and even men to an extent. So I mean we can talk more about the social media aspect, but are there other factors that you believe we're contributing to the sort of this rise and this crisis within kids. Yeah. And I think, um, well, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the social media piece. That's for sure a huge contributing factor. And then the other piece that I would say that I don't know if it really, it um, is specifically to kids and teens or just to everyone um, is sort of this grind culture mm. that we have and this societal pressure that we have to meet these high, high, almost unachievable and unrealistic expectations at all times. And you can think of like the teens in school who are supposed to be part of like the student government and be like excelling in sports, excelling in school, deciding at 17 years old what they want to be when they're older, you know, just all of this additional pressure that just seems to be, you know, it was always there, but it just seems to be more. And I don't know if social media has something to do 
to contribute to that pressure. But I think that that's also um, a big influential factor in what we're seeing. I've, I've thought about, so, and social media also plays into this, but you, I, I, I'm 30 and I assume you're around that age, uh, maybe a little bit younger, but you know, when we were growing up there, like we were sort of a little bit older when social media and uh, you know, all this instant information and news and being accessible mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. is uh, you know, it, it came when we were a little bit older, we weren't as young, but now we have kids, you know, three, four, five who can navigate YouTube and, they're growing up in an age where they're sort of, they know uh, if they wanted to or by mistake, like, you know, everything that's sort of happening in the world um, in a way. Like, we're, you're always aware of, you know, what's happening in yeah. in Yemen or China yeah. or, or Ukraine or right now uh, with the, uh, in Ethiopia and the Tigray mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, it's, there's always so much to know. And then we talk about pandemic and the things that are happening domestically and inflation, blah, 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 yeah. you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, like you can, I could just keep going the rest of the podcast yeah. and name everything. And so <laughs> I wonder because our generation, you know, we, we had nine 11 and then the 2008 crash and we sort of grown up with this collective trauma in a way that mm-hmm. I think it's like, is the world a great place? Yeah. And I'm not saying other generations did, but now, especially like it's hard. It's really hard to have hope. It's hard to have hope for me. Yeah. And I, you know, I have tools and I talk to people and I, I can conceptualize and con- put things in context. So I'm wondering how much you think just the world and knowing about it is affecting kids because they're finding out about all this stuff when they're like seven, they're six. I like know. I didn't, I didn't have the emotional or intellectual capacity to understand any of it. No. And like you said, because of social media, you know, at that time, when we were that age, or when our parents were kind of growing up, even if, you know, I would argue that bad things were still happening in the world, a lot of bad things were still happening in the world, you know, in, in the 90s, 80s, 70s, keep going Mm -hmm. back. Um, I don't know if there's, there was necessarily less bad things going on, but we weren't reminded of it. Every single day, you know, you open your phone, you go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, um, Instagram less. It's a little bit of a like fantasy world on Instagram, I would argue. Um, But, you know, but you're just constantly bombarded with those messages. And so I think that that's what creates that sense of just almost dread. And the world is such a bad place because you are just reminded of it every single day, right? You almost can't escape it unless you you didn't have technology or you didn't have a phone. And then that's not the solution because you're cutting yourself off from the world socially. Um, and like you said, that information, what's going on in the world is not digestible for children. And our society almost has to adapt and find a way to explain these things in a developmentally appropriate way to kids. That's not too much information, but also not no information to the point that they're like, well, I know something is going on and now you're just hiding stuff from me. And it creates this sense of mistrust Mm -hmm. with the world. Right. So it's a really thin, like kind of, tough place to be um 
I know, I don't know them off the top of my head, but I know there's a lot of like children's books and stuff um, coming out uh, to kind of facilitate this discussion for parents and teachers on how to talk to their kids about, you know, the news in the world and everything that's going on in a more digestible and developmentally appropriate way. The name escapes me now, of course, <laughs> um, but there are those resources out there for parents. We've talked a lot about issues and problems and rightly so. Uh, and I think a lot of people are probably wondering at this point and just in their regular day life, you know, if my child or a kid in my life that I know is struggling, like what more can we do if I can't bring them to the hospital? How can we, how can we prevent in ways crisis what more can we do um again in the theme of just asking big 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 questions <laughs> what are maybe one two three simple things everyday things um things that are easy to grasp that people with a child in their life whether it's parental grand grandkids brothers and sisters like what can we do more of or better to support kids who might be going through some sort of mental health crisis or struggle? Mm -hmm. Well, the first part is, and it might sound simple, but talk to your kids, right? Don't shy away from that conversation. It can be so easy and more instinctive for not just parents, but anybody who knows someone who's going through something difficult um, to kind of... Um, invalidate those emotions or just shut down any conversations that might involve big emotions that we don't quite understand or feel comfortable with or even agree with right so if you have a kid who's feeling really anxious or really sad but they live in a big house and have a lot of friends and have all of these things to be grateful for it can be so easy for a parent to just be like no you're okay you're fine like don't cry. You have nothing to be sad about. Look at, look at all the great things you have around you. And that might be true. And imagine, like, imagine Ryan, if you're feeling super sad and you know that you have all these fantastic things around you, you know, just we're putting aside all the things that are going on in the world right now. Um, but, and then someone tells you, you know, you don't have a reason to be sad. Just like be grateful. Right. How That's that my story. That's my story. And not even other people telling me, me knowing. And yet, no. I, yeah, I still can't explain why and I then like, it, don't want to be here. Well, what is wrong with me, right? That I'm, that I'm feeling so down on myself when I shouldn't be, right? And like, shooting all over yourself is, it, I don't know about you, but it's my biggest enemy. Mm -hmm. It's always being like, I should be like this, or I should do that. Right. But sometimes just having someone tell you like, you know, I'm noticing that you seem really sad right now and it's okay for you to feel that way. Do you, do you want to talk about it? You know, I'm here if, if you want to talk about it or I'm here, if you'd like a distraction, let's watch a movie or something, you know, and just kind of give the space to your child to share as much or as little as they want and let them know that what they're feeling is okay. My biggest message is that all emotions are valid, right? 
You can be angry. You can be sad. You can be happy. You can be anxious. It doesn't necessarily mean that all behaviors are okay, right? You can't always act on your emotions, but what you're feeling is always okay. That's Mm -hmm. your reality, right? And having someone tell you that you shouldn't feel that way or having yourself tell yourself that you shouldn't feel that way usually doesn't really help you in any Mm -hmm. way. I had this yeah, yeah, I had this conversation with my therapist, actually, because we were talking about anger. Mm. And, um, you know, as a man, you only see anger like like when you see people angry, uh, especially in like pop culture and TV, right? It's it's very violent. It's angry. It's yelling. It's mm-hmm. punching. It's smashing. It's throwing things. Um, it's like this very like dramatic outburst like that's what anger is supposed to look like even like that's how it's depicted right and then i kind of asked my therapist it's like well then what's the like what's the right healthy way to be angry because anger is a an emotion that we're all going to experience and that's fine it's valid but like how do you actually display or deal with anger in a healthy way and i was like i don't actually know other than to sort of try to avoid it Um, like I'll go take a walk, which is a healthier way of dealing with it. But like, I don't know if I've acknowledged it. Like, I just, I'm like, I'm angry. I need to take a break. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people might struggle with, especially anger. Like we know when we're sad, we cry. We know when we're happy, we smile and laugh, but when we're angry, what do we do and what's healthy? Yeah. And it's almost like, I would say it's just finding ways to redirect that anger, whether it be go like punch a punching bag, right? Like, like release all of that pent up energy that you have with that anger. If it is anger, that's kind of at the base, because sometimes anger can be, you know, you can think of the tip of the iceberg where, you know, you see the anger and the behaviors associated to anger, but then underneath there's maybe other, especially for men, because you talked about men, right? So Anger is usually a more socially acceptable emotion for men to express than is sadness and anxiety. Those are maybe a little bit more vulnerable emotions. So sometimes anger replaces those underlying emotions. So if Mm. you're a man or a woman that is kind of experiencing this anger, but not really understanding where it comes from, um, it might take a little bit of digging right and self-exploration and seeing like is there something else kind of like under that iceberg that might be contributing to those feelings of anger very yeah that's very interesting another Mm -hmm. great thing to think about why yeah you have to acknowledge why you're angry and yeah what what's making you that way what's what's Mm -hmm. the trigger what's the it's uh it's a whole different thing um i'm curious like, what are some of the things you worry about in particular? I'm not going to go as far as to say, like, keep you up at night. But when it comes to your field and your practice and the things mm. you're seeing or the things you foresee, what are some of those? What are some of those things that, like, you know, you think about a lot when it comes mm-hmm. to this? 
Yeah. Um, well, we already touched on this a little bit, but accessibility of services. Yeah. That's my, that is the thing that keeps me up at night. And I don't know if it's being, so I've just finished. Um, so as you know, as you mentioned, I'm a PhD student in clinical psychology, specializing in child and family psychology, which means we do kind of placements and different rotations. So I'm just finishing up a rotation in a private practice, um, which I really loved because of the flexibility. And I also really struggled with because of needing to charge patients for services, right? And it's not so much that I was charging those clients because I knew that they could afford it, right? They were here, they can afford it. But every time I would charge a client for that one session, I would think of all of the other families who can't access these services, not because of wait lists, you know, we'll put that on the back burner, mm-hmm. that's a whole other problem, <laughs> but because they can't afford it, right? And so that's something that I really, really, really struggle with in this field. And I'm trying to find ways to rectify. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the answer at the moment. And oftentimes, you know, not to discredit. No not to discredit any family struggle because it's all valid and important, but you think about lower income or vulnerable groups and families, they often come from situations or backgrounds with intergenerational trauma or family abuse or addiction or, you know, crime. Like, you know, there's just so many factors that just like complicate things and like accelerates the need for help. And when you're talking about healing and community healing, you know, how much good could be done if the government were to re- redirect tremendous resources into helping these families and these people help themselves and, and help their families and help their community. It's just like, it, bu- it bugs the shit out of me too, because yeah. the world yeah. could be so, so much better. And you want to talk about, you know, um, societal harm or, you know, colonialism harm. Like it just, goes back so far it's like we yeah i think i, I we, read something like i'm sorry to cut you off no but please I read something. indigenous peoples are or youth specifically are something like five to six times more yeah. likely to die by suicide than other populations and i'll be honest with you in in my practice um and again just to cover my own butt my clients are technically my supervisors who's a registered psychologist clients but in the people who i have seen I've never seen an Indigenous person in, ever, right? So, like, these people are five to six times more likely to die by suicide, and they're clearly not receiving services. Or if they go to Emerge, for example, they're probably kind of disregarded or discharged yeah. really quickly, and, you know, they're not properly assessed, and they're not properly redirected to the services that they might need. So it's really, really discouraging. And it just seems like such a huge systemic issue to start tackling. It's overwhelming to even think about. Uh, so there are things that I'm like, okay, what is my role in all of this? Like, how can I, how can I help? And how can I take steps to improve yeah. our system? And it's it's so hard as like someone who cares and empathizes, you know, like can't put the weight and the pressure of solving that issue because like we have people who are supposed to be doing that, but you want to help. And, and, you know, you, we talk about accessibility and 
I think in a large sense, we're talking, you know, wait lists and everything uh, for city services. We haven't even mentioned rural. Uh, Canada is a vast place with very few cities. Um, and you want to talk about, you know, indigenous regions or Northern Ontario or Alberta, Saskatchewan, like there are so many communities like that can't even find a family doctor, let alone yeah. a mental health professional. Um, it, it just, I sit here and I, I talk to people like you who are so educated and passionate. And I sit there like, how can Trudeau or premiers or any MP or MPP sit there and say they're doing a good job when we have so much of this happening and so many people without care. It just like if I, I would let it eat me up if, you know, it just it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, it's a lot. And I try to, you know, I try to not take it all on and see what is my part. If everyone in the world could just like tackle one small thing, yeah. you know, what could that be? So I try to think of it more in that way and also just in speaking about it to other people so that hopefully that instills some passion in them too to like take a small step towards change um so for me I don't have the answers yet I'm still a student still trying to figure it out um but I hope that we can continue to kind of have these conversations and, and figure out figuring out what our small part mm -hmm. can be in that change um before I let you go, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to um, maybe dispel some misconceptions or myths. I know we talked about oppositional defiance order. Um, you know, what are some things that are on your mind that people might not understand or have a misconception about? Um, why don't we take some time to get some stuff off your mind and be like, no, like, this is not it. Like, this is what's happening. This is the real thing. So, I mean, take it wherever you'd like to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot I could talk about. You mentioned ODD being one of them. And this might be, I mean, I think that our field is a little bit split on this opinion. Um, I just find that ODD is kind of a label that people place on quote unquote bad children um who can't regulate their behaviors and who are just these you know little devils and like but I also think that one I don't think there's any such thing as a bad child right a child doesn't act badly because they want to be bad they act badly because it's the only way that they can get their caregiver or an authority figure to meet their need in a certain way. And that could simply be getting attention from them, right? And they've learned that through bad behavior, they can get attention from their parents. Um, and there's usually a lot of other things that could contribute to ODD, like for, and it's not always, I wanna preface mm -hmm. this by saying it's not always, um, but oftentimes we can see that people who have been diagnosed with ODD have some sort of a history of trauma, right? So a lot of the behaviors that they've developed are actually coping techniques, right? Or ways to kind of meet their needs that are not necessarily um, super adaptive or healthy behaviors, but they're just 
how they've ensured their, if you, we think like kind of from an evolutionary perspective, I'm getting all like, it's a tongue twister. Um, but if we think of that perspective, you know, um, it's really to ensure their survival at the base, mm. right? Get their caregivers to pay attention to them and to do something that they need for them, right? And then they just end up kind of responding that way in all environments. Um, I can explain, do we have time for me to explain a little bit of how yeah, that plays out? Absolutely. So if you think of what, you know, when, when someone experiences trauma, right, it's like a shock to their nervous system. And I can talk about trauma in terms of a single traumatic event or multiple threats to their caregiving system. So it can be that, you know, they didn't have a consistent home environment. Maybe they jumped from foster care to foster care. Um, it could be that they lived in an abusive household. Um, and when I talk about abuse, it could be physical abuse, could be sexual abuse. I think those are the biggest ones that we think about when we think of abuse, but it could also be, um, verbal abuse or emotional abuse or um, neglect, right? Their basic needs aren't met. They're not always being fed consistently or clothed consistently. So when you live multiple um, kind of repeated incidents of this, your system kind of adapts in a way where you're always kind of looking out for threat, mm. right? Because by being super sensitive to threat evolutionarily, that's how um, you can ensure your survival because you can respond to that threat. Um, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with the fight or flight system, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, right? So just for your listeners, so if you think flight, you're faced with a danger and your response is to kind of, um, did I say fight or flight? I forget flight. which part. Flight. So if you think flight, you run away, right? Get away from that danger as fast as you can, or just avoid as much as mm -hmm. you can. If you think fight, you're going to attack, right? Um, and you think, how does that play out with kids? That's where you see like kind of the junk talk. They might say really mean things. They might be really, really aggressive towards you. Um, but that's kind of their, their trauma response, right? And then there's also the freeze where mm. they kind of don't do anything right so like if you think of animals like they could kind of just play dead right there's kind of no response but it's still you're they're still kind of they're still engaged and aware that they're doing this whereas if you think shut down state that's where you're just dissociated from so these are all a bunch of different trauma responses that you can have with odd what we tend to see is that fight mm -hmm. that aggression those those mean words um not doing what they're supposed to do type thing um and usually when you look at kind of the background history of some of these people or you know what kind of triggers these behaviors it's all in response to some sort of perceived threat. So we might look at that as being benign, like a teacher raising their voice or someone making a request. But for kids who are so highly sensitive 
to these different things in their environment, it doesn't take much for them to, um, I'm going to say flip their lid. So I'll go back and explain. So I have all these concepts and then I'm like, I have to go back to explain uh-huh, so you yeah. can follow what I'm saying. So you can think of, um, you know, your brain and for your viewers, I'm showing like a hand model and my thumb under here, this is like your more emotional brain, your limbic system, right? So this is where like that aggression, that anger, that highly like emotional state is situated. And then on top, you have your prefrontal cortex. So this is um, your more rational and thinking brain. This allows you to make decisions, to think before you act. Um, But for people who have experienced a trauma, um, who have a much lower threshold for threat, their lid flips. So their prefrontal cortex and their emotions become disconnected. So they no longer have access to kind of their rational Mm. thoughts, which is why it's really hard for them to kind of control those behaviors, right? And it's only by um, providing them with kind of a consistent and caring and loving environment that you can eventually build up that threshold so that they're not so quick to flip their lid in situations that they could um, potentially perceive as threatening. So that's why I don't super like the diagnosis of ODD is because I find that it sometimes it can, but it doesn't always get at the root of the problem. That is so fascinating. Oh my God. Very interesting. I went kind of back and forth between different terms. I'm so used to talking about these things with my colleagues. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, their lid is flipped. And <laughs> now I'm like, you, know, you, you did a great job. It like it perfectly illustrated. I'm like following yeah. along, just so intrigued. Just um, I can't really speak about it here. I'll tell you after, but just so yeah. intrigued about yeah. that whole that whole thing. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. And for people who are interested, so that whole hand model of the brain. So this is um, Daniel Siegel, who I believe is a psychiatrist. Um, He has a really good book called The Whole Brain Child. Um, And it's really, really interesting to understand how, you know, children's brains work and how it impacts their behaviors and what parents can do in response to that. And I found even myself reading it, it's really helpful for adults as well, right? Because this applies to everyone, not just kids. Mm-hmm. One ex- yeah. explains a lot why some adults are like the way they are because they've never, I mean, how many people have never dealt with the things that they've experienced and been through in any yeah. sort of healthy way? Yeah. And how much more empathy and compassion does that generate? in people when you understand, right? If I see someone who's like kind of quick to react or quick to respond, I'm like, oh man, their lid is flipped. You know, like <laughs> they haven't learned how to regulate those emotions. It's not their fault, right? Yeah. They're probably not doing that because they want to be malicious, you know? So it just, you come to understand the world in a much more, yeah. I guess, compassionate. That's how I've learned to deal with social media and like comments. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, I mean, you can never say it because that can come across very condescendingly or. Exactly. You would never, yeah. I would never go someone and be like excuse me sir I think your lid is yeah but you kind of think to yourself yeah. like this person like this person's this lashing out because yeah harm has been done and that's exactly. why they're doing what they're doing it's like oh okay yeah 
Yeah, yeah no, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, this was really great. Um, you, I'm so glad we connected and you came up to say hello after my speech with your mom because um, this was just a tremendous conversation. So intelligent, so articulate. And uh, when when do you get to become, you know, doctor? Oh, still more to go. Yeah, I'm going into my fifth year. Um, I think about one, it's a long process, (laughs) about one more year before I defend my thesis. Um, And then I'll have to go off to internship, write my licensing exam. Heavens. Stay tuned. Wow. Well, well, yeah, we'll have to connect again down the, the yeah, line when sure. your doctor and your thesis is defended. And yeah, uh, yeah no, this is really great. Thank you so much uh, for all this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this was, I feel like I just learned from you too. And just hearing you <laughs> speak about certain topics. Um, I give a chance and I almost forgot to plug. Um, so I don't know if, I know you said you're not on TikTok, but if you have... <laughs> website or bookings or information that you share um plug whatever you'd like to plug right now yeah um so my so you can find me on twitter um i oh my god i don't even know what my twitter handle is actually that's uh (laughs) let me just check it is so it's d stefano d i s T-E-F-A-N-O underscore M-G. Um, so you'll find me on there probably talking about some more academic related stuff. Um, otherwise, maybe one day I'll be on TikTok. So look it's out. It's big. Um, it's big. I love <laughs> I love therapy talk. Uh, yeah. I learned so much. It's great. Yeah. So yeah. So Twitter is where you can find me primarily. Wonderful. Michaela, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.